There is nothing better than Play-Doh and pipe cleaners. Right, Sri? Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Again, we are the faithful here. The rest of them have scattered to... Where is the great getaway, by the way? Redwood Park, which is... Okay, okay. Still San Mateo County. So we're still in the same county, but um, anyway, we're here this morning. It's great to see you all. And um, I am going to invite you to read uh, or to follow along uh, with our scripture reading this morning taken from uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The writer says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this morning. I'm grateful, Father, that we can come together um, as a community of faith to read your word and consider your word. And I pray that you would very simply speak uh, to us in the soul, the depths of our souls this morning. Help us to have a a picture, a, a word from you that perhaps we did not have before or maybe remind us of something that we have long uh, kind of put to the side about your goodness, your grace, your love, your, uh, your power, your mercy, your forgiveness to us through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, 39 years ago, I can't believe I'm actually saying those words, 39 years ago in the summer of 1978, I set out with a friend to climb to the top of Union Peak in southern Oregon. I was living and working at Crater Lake National Park at the time, and we had the afternoon off, so we set out to scale this peak that rises to 7,800 feet or so inside the park boundary. It was a lovely day, as most days in the mountains of Oregon are in the summer, and so we grabbed our day packs, a trail map, some water, granola, and apples, and we drove to the trailhead. We were young and in great shape, and we were already acclimated to higher elevation hiking, and so in what seemed to be a few short hours of forest and trail hiking, we followed the trail above the tree line, and in no time, we were scrambling on all fours to the top of this extinct volcano with volcanic pumice rock all around us. At the top, we saw vistas as far as the eye could see in every direction. It was at once lovely 
and breathtaking. Having made it to the top of the peak, we celebrated with a few snacks and a few photos to to capture our accomplishment, and then we thought we would take a quick nap before the rocks, among the rocks, before our descent down to the car. Now, part of Mountaineering 101 advice is that when in the mountains, make sure you are ready for all types of weather. For in the mountains, the weather can turn on a dime. And as no surprise, while we were sleeping, the gray and dark looming clouds that we noticed to the south of us just before our nap quickly descended and formed around us in a fury. Did I mention we were young and in great shape? We were also very foolish for two reasons. First, we had minimal clothing in our packs to help us adjust to a change in temperature. And secondly, we realized that we had left our compass and map in the car. So keep that in mind when you hear the rest of this. The storm hit us pretty hard. First with gray and dark cloud cover, dropping the temperatures quite quickly. But as we made our way down the peak, sliding on the loose pumice rock, the wind became stronger and stronger. And by the time we scampered down just below the tree line, we were pelted with rain and then hail. And then finally, we found ourselves in a complete whiteout snowstorm. At that point, we hunkered down behind some large boulders, covered ourselves with some flimsy ponchos, and rode the storm out. Fortunately, summer storms are very squall-like. They develop rapidly, they blow in like a flash, and then they leave just as quickly as they came. So while the storm was over in about 30 minutes or so, it left behind about two inches of snow and covered any sign of the trail. In fact, everything was white on the ground, and after about an hour of searching, it was very clear to us that we did not know where the trail was. The other Mountaineering 101 tip or piece of advice to know about is that it does not take much time to get turned around in a forest, because unless you know where you are going, clearly we did not, everything begins to look the same. Everything begins to look familiar. Did I mention we were young and in shape? Did I mention that we were foolish because we did not have a compass or a map? We were lost in the wilderness, and we knew it. One of the most practical and useful ways to look at the Scriptures, to God's Word written for us and to us, is to see the Scriptures as a compass, as a trail map, if you will, pointing us always to the very heart of God. For at the core, spiritually speaking, we too, in our humanity, we are lost. And we are in need of a compass, a trail map, as it were, to get us back home to be with God again. And in a word, that compass, that trail map to God is Jesus Christ, provided for us through the power and the illumination and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture confirms this idea for us. Think with me as an example. The Apostle John says about Jesus in John chapter 14 that I, speak, Jesus speaking of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Last week, as we continued our journey of finding our home with God, we made a stop at a book in the Bible called, very simply, Hebrews. Kind of nestled towards the end of the New Testament. This book was written as both a declaration to the early church of the greatness and superiority of Jesus in all things. But this book is also a book of warning to those who might get caught up in the events, caught up in the happenings of the world, caught up in the sudden storms that are generated in our day-to-day living. A few sample warnings found in this book include, do not drift away from what you have heard, chapter 2. Do not harden your hearts and in unbelief turn away from the living God, chapter 3. Beware of falling short of the rest of God, His rest being our destination and our home with Him, chapter 4, and so on and so forth. Declaration regarding the greatness and superiority of Jesus in all things and warning not to lose sight of Him as we journey forward and onward to the very heart of God. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, where in the first six verses, there are two remarks I want you to notice with me for the remainder of our time. The first remark is found in the command that is given in verse 1, and we'll take a look at that in a moment. The second remark is the statement made by the author who says of Jesus that he is faithful as a son over the house of God. And we will take a look at that word faithful in a moment as well. So let's go back to the command. Notice that in verse 1 it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, and I'll stop right there and just say that that message, this message is really for the church, for you and I, for the church global, for the church local. Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, Fix your eyes on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our apostle and high priest. Now, here's a freebie for you, okay? A freebie, you like those every once in a while in church. Bible Reading 101, not to be confused with Mountaineering 101. Bible Reading 101 says, whenever you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, you need to ask a very simple question, and that is, Does anybody know? What's it there for? Pretty simple. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? And the writer, you know what? And I blew it. I should show you this, didn't I, sweetie? This is my compass. This actually was the compass I left in the car 38 years ago. And I almost left it in my pants and forgot to show it to you this morning. But this is the compass. Okay. What the writer is saying here by using the word therefore is he's saying, look, in light of all that I have said thus far in chapters 1 and 2, that Jesus is the unique Son of God, that he has been appointed heir of all things, that through him the universe and all that is in it was made, that he sustains everything by his powerful word, that he is greater than and superior to angels, that he is our suffering, victorious, and great high priest. In light of all of that, here's the command. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
Jesus is the most supreme one. Jesus is the most superior one. He is the greatest one. Uh, There's this debate going on, if you read sporting news at all, about who the greatest of all time is regarding basketball or football or golf. And they call that person a goat. Greatest of all time. That's just totally free. I didn't even have that in my notes here. I just thought I'd share that with him. <laughs> Jesus is the greatest of all time. And as a result, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every single name, that at the name of Jesus, what happens? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the greatest. Therefore, in light of all that has been said thus far, the command from verse 1 now comes into view, front and center, and we are to fix our thoughts on Him who is from God, representing God, and of all, and of all God's interests to all of humanity. His name is Jesus, and we are to fix our thoughts on Him, and that's the command from verse 1. Jesus is greater than the angels. We learned that in chapter 1. And for all of you lovers of Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, and the stories of David and Daniel and Abraham and Isaiah, the author to the book of Hebrews tells us in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 3 that Jesus is greater and superior to Moses. Now that is radical thinking. That's quite a statement if you were embedded with Jewish history and culture like this first century audience was when they were listening to and reading the book of Hebrews for the very first time. Moses was venerated by the nation of Israel. He was the liberator of the people. He gave the law of God to the people of God at Mount Sinai. He was a close friend of God. Jesus greater than Moses? Indeed. Now, at this point, I'm going to resist the temptation to tell you how to fix your thoughts and your eyes upon Jesus. Although you certainly can make a case that what we are doing here this morning in our song and in the reading of the word and in our prayers and time of community with one another, all of that what we do here this morning is a way of fixing our eyes upon Jesus. But aside from that, I'm going to resist the temptation to speak about the how and instead tell you the why, the why we ought to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And the simple answer is spelled out for us in verses 2 through 6. We fix our thoughts on Jesus because, in a word, he's faithful. That's why. And ultimately, we fix our thoughts on Jesus because he is worthy And that was the whole point of our song this morning as we opened up our service. Worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For he created all things and by his will they were created and have their being. But it does beg the question, how was he faithful? And for that answer, I would like for us to consider the cross which was our focal point leading up to Easter just a few weeks ago. 
So as we hear these words now through this beautiful Easter lily as a great juxtaposition to the cross, I want you to focus also on the cross. What I love about the Lenten season leading up to Easter is that for Kim and me, it's a time of concentrated and intentional living with Jesus and his story. Honestly, it's hard to set the time aside with busy working lives, but consistently living with Jesus and his story is imperative if we're going to grow in our discipleship with him. During the six weeks of Lent, we take a slow walk with Jesus as presented in one of the Gospels, and this year, it was the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, part of the intensity of this story is is the last week of Lent, the Holy Week, the Passion Week. And it's here at the end of the week that the culmination of the life of Christ and His teaching witness to the love of God. It is here that the suffering that he endures for the salvation of humanity is exposed in raw form. Jesus is put to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross for all to see. As part of my reflection upon Easter and the just-concluded Lenten season, I I read that in examining the words and statements of Jesus from the moment of his arrest after the Passover meal on Thursday night to the moment of his death on the cross, there is actually very little that he says. Have you ever noticed that? I never really thought about that much before. In fact, write, in fact, Mark, the gospel writer, Mark writes that there's only six statements that Jesus makes from the time of his arrest to the time of his death. That's a period of about 18 hours. Both Luke and Matthew have about 10 sentences. John doesn't have very many more than that. Jesus is interrogated, and he's beaten. He's mocked, spit upon. He's given the chance to exonerate himself. And virtually, he has nothing to say except that his silence really says it all, doesn't it? He was silent for the most part because he knew of the cup that he must drink from. He knew he would have to suffer and die for humanity. As Mark says in his gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, how was Jesus faithful? Well, first, he was faithful in his mission. He never lost sight of his calling and his vocation before God. Secondly, from the cross, we see that Jesus was faithful in prayer. Here we see two prayers outlined for us by the gospel writers. The first prayer is one of forgiveness. Having been nailed to the cross, beaten, battered, and enduring a physical punishment, that is unimaginable in the extreme. There is Jesus praying to his Father in heaven, one of the six such statements from the Gospel of Mark. Praying for those who not only nailed him to the cross, but also for those heaping insults and mockery upon him as he hung there dying. 
These are familiar words to all of us here, or to most of us maybe this morning, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Faithful in prayer. The second prayer Jesus offers is a prayer of lament, a prayer of lament. And these words come from Psalm 22. But Jesus makes them his own. When he says to his father, this would be the second of six statements that he made on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that the lament comes from his heart. Nothing is held back. The prayer is full of pain-filled emotion. Jesus is feeling abandoned, forsaken, and overwhelmed. And what he is modeling for us is the reality that lament is prayer. It's okay to lament to God and before God in this way. Walter Brueggemann, a noted Old Testament scholar, says this about the Psalms of Lament. That the Psalms of Lament have a very specific form. Lament Psalms move from this articulation of the hurt and anger we feel inside to the submission of that hurt and anger to God. Finally, to a relinquishment or a release of that hurt and anger into God's care. Did you see that form? Did you see that pattern? An articulation of hurt and anger to submission of that hurt and anger to a relinquishing or releasing of that hurt and anger into God's care. God's not offended when we bear our emotion and hurt, when we take our pain and suffering before Him and to Him. God stands with us in solidarity. He knows how we feel. He gave up His one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as a living sacrifice so that we would not have to suffer a life without God for all of eternity. God stands with us in solidarity. So by way of the cross, we see Jesus faithful to his mission to serve humanity and give his life as a ransom for many. We see Jesus faithful in prayer, the prayer of forgiveness that he offers for his oppressors and the raw, honest prayer of lament. And finally, we see Jesus is faithful in his devotion to God. The last eight words Jesus said on the cross before he breathed his last breath from Luke's gospel. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a statement of the relinquishment and release that Brueggemann spoke of in his description of the prayer of lament just moments ago. In his final act of devotion to his heavenly Father, Jesus entrusts his life into his Father's care, into the arms of heavenly love, and he models for us faithfulness and devotion that is both life-giving and filled with hope. So why is it Why are we to fix our thoughts on Jesus? Because in a word, he is faithful. And therefore, in a word, 
he is worthy. Worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion and affection. He is truly the way to the heart of God. So in closing, some of us here come this morning without our compass. We come without our map. We've left them behind, tucked away neatly in some drawer somewhere. Some of us come here this morning a bit lost, perhaps, disoriented, and tempted to chart our own way in the coming days. Perhaps it has been some time since we've considered Jesus, the unique Son of God. Some of us have been tempted to spread our devotion to a variety of other pursuits, looking to see which one will provide peace and satisfaction or help and solace in our time of need. Oh, that you may heed and hear the words from the writer of the Hebrews and therefore fix your eyes and heart and thoughts upon the Lord Jesus Christ. May you conclude with the writer of this book that when you consider Jesus, you therefore can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will receive mercy at God's throne. And you will find grace to help you in your time of need. Jesus is greater, the greatest of all time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to consider your story. The story of the faithful Son whom we call the King of endless glory, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faithful in mission, faithful in prayer, faithful in devotion, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our honor. He is worthy of our affection, our time. He is worthy to build our lives around and upon. He is the Lord God, the creator of the universe. Thank you for giving us the reminder this morning, the command this morning, that comes from the desire that you have in your heart, and that is to fix our eyes upon this, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.